This episode brought to you by Odyssey. The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Totally. Listener discretion is advised. I don't know about you, but I am... I took a Twitter and news of the day break for like a week and it only took me like 12 hours to get rewound back up into the stress ball I was before I took that hiatus. Well, uh, we have been watching the shopping channel this afternoon. Oh, no, sorry. That was MSNBC and CNN. (laughs) Wait, what? Uh, Because of, well, everybody was alluding. Oh, I see what you mean. So, you know, we're watching. I couldn't do that. I, I, I can't watch any of that crap. I, I'm going to have to go back on another social media hiatus because I can't handle another tweet from Donald Trump oh, or some jackass comment. I so know, I was I desperate to find some content for us to talk about that was not COVID related. And you'll never guess what fell into my echo chamber. COVID, where were you looking? I was on ifuckinglovescience.com. Okay, good sight. What did you find? Are men more likely to be growers or showers? I don't know what that means. You do damn well know what that means. Growers or showers? Now, I would believe that most men would prefer to be showers rather than growers. I must be really stupid because I don't get the inference. Your penis yes. is either a shower or a grower. Oh, Did you know this? No. Okay, now I get Have you never mm. been in a high school locker room? Not where I've been actually looking around or showing stuff off. You can't not, and I'll tell you why. Because the showers will make sure that when they go from their little cubby mm. in high school out to the the mutual shower that we all embarrassingly had to, to use, yeah. that's the guy who's not, you know, making a mad dash. Right. Okay. But the interesting news is, is that while I suspect that most men would prefer to be showers, it turns out the growers are the ones with the bigger penis. It has never really occurred to me. Um, well, you are a rather tall man with a long foot. It's true. Ten and a half, double E. So you've never really had to think about this as a I've never sure. really thought it. No, I've never traveled in those circles. According to the International Journal of Impotence Research, and there is apparently such a thing, which is a team of urologists from the Tulane University School of Medicine, the University of California at Irvine, and Mahidol University of Bangkok, they explain that they reviewed data from 274 patients that had undergone some ultrasound scans on their dysfunctional penises. And they measured them both in the flaccid state and at peak erection. Which, by the way, awesome name for a punk band. Yes, it is. Okay. And the way they got peak erection from men who had dysfunction such that they found themselves in a study for it, they injected a compound designed to widen blood vessels in the penis. Mm-hmm. And? But what was most interesting to note, that the average change in length from one state to the other was 1.6 inches or 4 centimeters, and they used that, unfortunately phrased, as the cutoff point. <laughs> Yeah. The growers were those whose length changes exceeded 
four centimeters or 1.6 inches, showers would match it or fall somewhat short. And it turns out 26% of men are growers, 74% are showers. I see where, okay. So the upshot is for most men, what you see is what you get. But for one in four men, good things come in small packages. But it's the growers who tended to have a larger final erection. <sighs> Never wanted the guest to arrive more than this moment right here. Yeah, it is time. But I want everybody to know that you were the one that broke up, uh, brought up the whole show or grower thing. So I, I, I bear no responsibility for the way this program began. Or ended, because chances are pretty slim that a sponsored show with Audis is going to uh, begin with this. <laughs> that's true. The lead. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that. Do I even bother mentioning it? Do I save it for next week? No, let's just go. <laughs> All right, stand by. Here we go. Here we From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now available in your grocer's dairy case. Ask for yours today. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. The science of audio with multi-platinum Grammy-winning master ear... I know, it was a mouthful, eh? Yeah. Didn't hit that cold. The Science of Audio with multi-platinum Grammy-winning mastering engineer Glenn Schick. He's worked with artists like Indigo Girls and Future, and we won't hold work making Justin Bieber sound good against him either. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So mixing and mastering are not the same thing? No. Mixing is when you take the raw tracks of all the multi-track recordings that you've done in a recording session. Let's say that you have 24 tracks available, and what you're going to do is mix those individual microphones or inputs, drums, guitar, bass, keyboards, voice, whatever, and you are going to mix them all together, giving everybody, uh, giving every track its appropriate volume so you have an approximate sound of what the recording will sound like. With mixing... Mastering. What you end up doing is breaking everything, all that stuff down to two tracks from 24 or whatever it is, uh, so that, and then add all the extra little spice, a little bit of reverb here, a little bit of EQ there, a little bit of outboard trickery there. And then that two track recording, that stereo recording, will be the thing sent out to the CD pressing plant or the the final, that, that's the final, final, final version of the song. So you record it, you mix it, and then you master it. You won't be offended if I check your answer, would you? You go right ahead. So as part of our Audis series on the science of audio, we've managed to land a man who not only knows the difference between mixing and mastering, but if his mobile rig is any indication, he's a bit of a gear geek, too. He's Glenn Schick, a 25-year veteran mastering engineer responsible for multi-platinum Grammy-winning albums for artists as diverse as Indigo Girls and Justin Bieber. Don't hold it against him. He joins us now. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Where are you coming from? Uh, right now, I have just moved to the beautiful uh, city of 29 Palms, California, next to Joshua Tree. Oh, so you're near where Coachella won't be in October. Exactly. Right, okay. So did Alan get it right? I would say pretty much uh, it's on the money. The only difference is it's now not 24 tracks of uh, information. It's more like 150. Yeah, I talked to uh, Amy Lee of, of uh, Evanescence. And she was playing some stuff for me. And I said, how many tracks did you use? And she says, um, 
292. Yeah, that's uh, the track count uh, since the old days. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, a student in Mixer back in the days of two inch 24 track machines. And uh, yeah, the track count has gone uh, it's just ridiculous now. There's a thousand takes of everything. When I worked in radio very early in my career, I had gone in on the weekend after my shift to work on a personal project using a 24-track uh, mixer that I had never used before. Oh, boy. And I screwed up the production studio so bad with the inserts and the sends that it took the engineering department an entire goddamn day to fix what I fucked up. I am not surprised at all. I mean, once you start messing with buses and sends and returns, holy shit. You're just pushing buttons left, right, and center. But Glenn, you know, help us understand a little bit more about the nuance associated with going from uh, an artist's idea and a recording engineer's laying down of those tracks to what I ultimately end up getting off iTunes or Amazon or what have you. The big thing that, you know, people forget about is, you know, an artist idea is one thing and then actually translating it into sonics and acoustics and, you know, uh, depth and uh, ambience is a whole other thing. Uh, you know, an artist can have a, a, a concept of I want something ethereal and light and, you know, that's not what necessarily goes into the microphone. Um, so it's both the artist and the producer and the engineer's job to kind of uh, not only capture the sound, but also uh, create a, a, a sonic palette of, uh, you know, sounds that really kind of complement what the, the artist is trying to accomplish. Yeah, the recording studio is an instrument unto itself. It's one thing to sit there and set up a band and play, but then you can use the studio to create sounds and moods and feels and everything that uh, aren't available in the real world. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, like you said, there. I think the initial recordings of most things were uh, try to be as real as possible. And as studio technology got better and better, you know, uh, you have to cite like Sgt. Pepper's was one of those big turnaround times uh, for recording engineers when they heard what happened with that and Pet Sounds, uh, the Beach Boys album, and uh, everything kind of took off from there. So what was the big uh, jump from the Beach Boys and the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band type stuff from the Beatles on multi-track when we went digital? Because ultimately, I do want to get to the mobile rig that you're working with right now, but let's sort of work our way up to that evolution of the science behind the sound to digital. Sure. Digital's been with us quite a long time. So um, it's not really, uh, you know, a new technology in any shape, way, or form. You know, most professionals have been using it since, I would say, very early 80s. Um, you know, for myself, I was starting a lot of most of my digital stuff because I was originally a mixing and recording engineer. Uh, and, you know, my analog days started winding down in, you know, it was early 80s. And then the digital machines were starting to come in. And uh, CDs, you know, started making their debut around 82 or something like that. And uh, that's really when everything kind of kicked into high gear. But 
a lot of that early digital equipment was very good sounding. And uh, as much as people kind of uh, berated, oh, it's digital, it, it doesn't have the warmth and uh, it's not as good, um, it was because people were new with the technology and kind of took advantage of some things about the technology that they couldn't do with analog, uh, like making things very loud and, you know, uh, things got a little biased from the get-go, whereas other technologies would have slipped in quietly. It didn't quite go so quietly. I somehow remember the English Beat and Rory Gallagher being two of the first totally digital, like recorded, mixed, and mastered digital records. Mm -hmm. And that, so that would be 7980-ish somewhere. Yeah, that, that that's definitely where it started. And, and you probably remember that little DDD yep. uh, stamp on the CDs and uh, such. Uh, and yeah, that was like a, a, a badge of honor for some of the first guys because, you know, wow, I had, you know, a full digital setup. I didn't have to convert the entire process. Right. That was probably the general public's first exposure to the idea that music technology was produced digitally in the first place. I remember friends turning their nose up at a compact disc. Why am I paying $38 for a compact disc that's AAD? The, the only D in there is at the very end, yeah. and that's the CD. I remember looking at, uh, you know, ADDs and AADs and thinking, oh, how old fashioned. I guess <laughs> you would have been using the, the old Sony PCM stuff back then. Yeah, the Sonys were uh, uh, Mitsubishi and Sony were like the two leaders of the time. And, uh, you know, there was a bunch of other guys, kind of more boutique -y, uh, digital guys. There's a guy in uh, Switzerland, Daniel Weiss, who was building amazing digital equipment back in the 80s. And uh, most of those records that you see, DDD, his stuff was on the last D. <laughs> Has there been a major revolution since that digital revolution of the 1980s, or has it just been an evolution that's brought you to the point where you have a mobile rig now that you can have anywhere in the world at any point in time and do your job as you had back in the 1980s in a $2 million studio? It's uh, definitely an evolution. Um, I think uh, when I first opened my studio, uh, my first analog mastering studio was back in 94. And um, that was fully analog. And, uh, you know, we, we went digital at the end for some stuff, but we also had, you know, tape decks and everything there. And we had a, a record lathe and we'd cut to, you know, right to vinyl. Uh, so, you know, we could go full analog the whole route, uh, and we did occasionally, but uh, we used some of the digital technology back then. And uh, now it's just gotten to the point of where uh, some of that unique gear that had like uh, a real special quality to it, and uh, people said, you know, I, I really don't want to live without my you know, Fairchild compressor and my, uh, you know, uh, Verimu or whatever they loved. Uh, you know, I love my 1176 compressor. Uh, you know, it, now those things are, you know, available in a plug-in and some of them sound just as good as the original ones and dare say some of them even sound a little better occasionally uh, or have features that you couldn't have. Uh, are you recording, what, 192, 96? What, what are you doing? 
Uh, for the most part, I do 96, although sometimes, you know, I'll get a client that'll bring in higher res files than that, and then I'll treat it differently. But uh, for the most part, 96 seems to be kind of a happy, uh, you know, sample rate. And uh, I do most of my stuff in 24-bit, uh, but occasionally also 32-bit uh, flute. So. When you say 96, are you talking 96 bits? 96 kilohertz. Yeah. 96 kilohertz, because this podcast is in 120 no, 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 kilohertz. No, Why uh, would you be no, so... Glenn, yep. Glenn, please explain. Am I confusing things? Yeah, you, your, your podcast is 128 uh, uh, bits. Uh, bits is a very small piece of uh, uh, audio data compared to uh, uh, frequency response, which is, uh, you know, a 96 kilohertz file of your podcast would take up a chunk of a hard drive that uh, would put a hurting on you. Let me explain, Michael. When you have, when you're recording a, a CD, uh, it uses a signal that samples the, the, the audio coming in 44,100 times per second. Right. I understand okay? that. So with ninety six, it's ninety six thousand. Uh, so it's you still get the serrated little little ladders in terms of if you zoom in on the on the free on on, on the waveform, but they're much smaller than the forty four kilohertz. Right. Okay. I'm, I was looking at the wrong part of that equation. Right. Wrong. Wrong. Yeah. So tell me then about this mobile device you've got because when when I think about a mobile rig, at the end of the day, all I'm thinking about is a pair of headphones, a MacBook Pro, and Pro Tools. Well, I mean, you're you're not far off from it. Uh, I'm not on a Mac, but uh, I'm Windows guy. But um, you know, everything pretty much has gotten to the point of where if I have great monitoring, uh, and my monitoring, uh, you know, is the best of best that you can do with uh, both headphones and uh, a digital analog converter. Right. Explain that monitoring component. Are you talking about headphones? You're talking about you know physical speakers in a room. What do you mean? I haven't used physical speakers since about 2012. Really? Every master I have done since 2012 has been sans room and sans speakers, which really kind of puts a lot of people aghast. <laughs> well, yeah, I I'm aghast. <laughs> no, but if everybody is consuming the music with these types of headphones and AirPods and all that kind of crap, why would you use you know a $100,000 speaker system to master your music? I'll tell you what, because I have a ten thousand well, dollars set of speakers in my basement. I want to hear what it sounds. You're the only one. <laughs> no, he's not the only one. Uh, you know, I had hundred thousand dollars speakers in my last studio. Uh, and I probably had several different versions of those in different studios over the years. And um, you know, I'll tell you the one thing that the kind of people leave out of this whole high-end audio equation is that your brain learns to listen, and your brain will adjust itself to headphones. Your brain will adjust itself to small speakers, to larger speakers. Uh, you know, you, you witness that you see everyone watching, 16-year-old uh, kids are all watching feature films on their phones. And they're not missing the movie. Uh, you know, certainly it's maybe not the same experience as going to a, a projector and a big screen in a nice theater, but um, they're still getting that movie and still, you know, digesting it well. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that uh, working with headphones is any kind of step down from like big screen to phone. It's not. It's maybe big screen to a, a little smaller screen. <laughs> and, uh, the headphones nowadays and the uh, the DACs, they call it, the digital analog uh, converters, uh, are so good um, that it just really, I don't miss anything really other than 
some visceral impact from the bass and some things uh, playing back on a speaker. That's about the only thing I miss occasionally. So mixing and mastering, both on headphones. I don't do mixing anymore. I leave that to uh, people with better skills than myself now. Uh, so I, I've been strictly mastering since 94, and I was a mixer for many years before that. Okay, what kind of headphones do you use to master? He had to ask on the episode where we're sponsored by a headphone manufacturer. Well, I'm, I'm hoping, well, we can always edit this out just in case the answer's wrong. <laughs> I love Beats headphones. No, no, uh, just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, Glenn, so nice having you on the big program. This program is over, I'm out of here, cut him off. Glenn Schick is a 25-year veteran mastering engineer responsible for multi-platinum Grammy-winning albums and for artists as diverse as Indigo Girls and Justin Bieber. Glenn, before we let you go, what is your best Justin Bieber story? No, no, no. He never, he never answered the question. He was joking. <gasps> yeah, no, no. no the, Jimmy Iovine was out there with a gun, uh, so I had to say oh, that. Okay, good. Uh, okay. Um, no, uh, what I've been using for the last bunch of years is uh, a company's headphone, uh, Audizy, and I use their flagship headphone called an LCD4. Okay, explain what the LCD4 is. I think I've seen them. The uh, My high-end audio place of choice nearby has a, a huge, huge selection of Audizys. Um, explain what, you, what you're listening to. I mean, I've tried a bunch of different things, and there's plenty of, you know, good-sounding headphones, but... Uh, the Odyssey stuff really had the most musical uh, kind of profile to me. And um, I had a friend of mine who's a producer in, in the UK, and uh, we were talking one day, and he was like, uh, you know, I really love this. And I was like, oh, I love that too. And he's like, I love this thing. And I said, oh, I really love that too. And we realized we had the same taste. And uh, one day he came to me and he said, I finally heard these headphones and they sound exactly like I want to hear things. And I said, well, I must find these headphones. And uh, I did. And, uh, you know, I had this similar kind of reaction when I first put them on my head. I was like, I'm hearing what I know is in the music, uh, good and bad. Well, that's a very, very strong endorsement for the product. I'm, I'm a little worried people are going to think that we set you up with this. <laughs> uh, I don't really uh, uh, worry about that because, you know, I pay for my stuff, but uh, it's, it's okay. No, they, they are very good. They are extremely good because, like I say, my high-end audio place of choice has a big selection of them and I whenever I go in I mean they can be very expensive but I mean you pay you get what you pay for uh, when it comes to other people who master records I mean there's guys like Andy Wallace there's guys like Bob Ludwig uh, Tom Lord Elch who um, who do you think besides yourself of course is a great mastering engineer there's so many great guys. Uh, I think my early inspirations were, uh, there's a company who used to be based out in New York called Sterling Sound. Yes. And they had they had a just plethora of amazing top talent that were all the heavy hitters in my industry. Uh, Ted Jensen, George Marino, uh, Chris Geringer, uh, those guys are all top-notch. There's a guy uh, in California here, uh, Bernie Grunman, who's, you know, just also one of the kind of legends in my business. Um, you know, Paul Stubblebine. There's there, there's so many good engineers. Okay, I, I have another question before we let you go. Um, give us an example of something you have mastered and tell us what we need to listen for 
in the final mastering version. Hmm. So you're, you're kind of asking about a before and after? Just tell me, give me an example of an artist that you have mastered and mm -hmm. something that we would know and then what you did to make it great. Um, I mean, if I had to just try to come up with something off the top of my head, uh, there was a old track I did for uh, an artist named Ludacris. Uh, and it was a very silly song called How Low Can You Go? And in that song, there is a uh, bass that goes uh, cycling down from a very high note all the way down to probably like 20 hertz, like earth-shaking bass. And that had to be a consistent playback through many systems. Uh, so you'd hear all the notes as it went doom, 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 doom. And uh, that was something that didn't translate so much when I got it. Uh, but after I was done, you could hear it whether you heard it on a little speaker or a big speaker. Uh, and that's part of what we do. You know, I never thought about that because you are mixing, sorry, you are mastering a, a final product that has to be heard through headphone speakers, car radio speakers, computer speakers, cheap skull, can, uh, skull candy earbuds, uh, and all the rest. You're right, yeah. And phone ringtones. Phone, all that stuff. It's all, it, it's, you got one chance to make it sound great through all those different delivery systems. Absolutely. Hmm. Glenn, thank you so much for your time. Fascinating stuff. Thank you for having me, guys. Glenn Schick is a 25-year veteran mastering engineer responsible for multi-platinum Grammy-winning albums for artists as diverse as Indigo Girls and Justin Bieber. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. Time now for Geeks and Beats update. I got to pull up the Patreon file here. Got so caught up in the conversation, I didn't even uh, check into that. Uh, oh, we've we've got we've got uh, a complaint. Oh no. I've, okay, I'll tell you your, you tell me our complaint and I'll tell you mine this week. Antoinette Vanden Dickenberg, who is a member of the world's worst intern program, she is an intern because she paid us a dollar an episode to work on the program, doesn't do any actual work, and the only thing we do is say thank you through forums like this and on LinkedIn. She says, such a pity she missed the Geeks and Beats intern only drinks night. Oh, okay, well, we're going to do this again. Every two weeks... Anyone who supports the big show will get a secret link to uh, join us to uh, basically do a, a Q&A at the end, have a little get together. I was thinking that instead what we should do is we should set it up so that they can watch the show being produced. And then at the end, we can do a little Q&A. What do you think? Well, I, I, I'd like that. And then we could open a chat room so we can have them. It's the intern chat room. I like it. Exactly. So if you would like to support the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, go to geeksandbeats.com, click on the support the show link, and there are multiple ways. You can do it via Patreon or you can do it via PayPal. PayPal is just a weekly thing we ding your, your account for however you want to help us with. But on Patreon, the way it works is you set a lifetime limit and we'll suck the life out of your credit card up to that <laughs> lifetime limit, depending on each episode we put out. But what's interesting to note is that if you do not set a lifetime limit... We will suck your credit card dry till the end of time. Yes, and uh, I, I'm hoping that there will be more of those people because I, I ran into a problem this week.
Well, you might be happy to hear that our co-producer from last week who donated $25 for the episode, Kurt Austin, did not set a lifetime limit. And I have a feeling we're going to be dinging his credit card until he realizes why we've been pulling this money out of his account. Is, um, is, is there any money in the account that you can send me? What do you need? Well, I got a, I got a letter from a lawyer on, uh, on Friday. Oh God. Um, apparently back in 2013, I used a copyrighted photo in a pod, in a, in a uh, blog post. And so this guy is shaking you down for money? What's happened now, and this is a, a note of caution to anybody who's got a website who goes to Google Images and grabs something uh, and then posts that on their website. Uh, yes, they will hunt you down eventually. That's become the thing. They will hunt you down for unauthorized use of an unlicensed image. And I got hunted down mm-hmm. for an image I used back in 2013. Yeah. And, of course, my website, which is a journal of musical things, doesn't make anything. I mean, if in a good year, it would make $1,000 with Google clicks uh, and AdSense. Uh, and uh, I got this letter from this from this um, law firm in, in, in Santa Ana, California, saying... We can't find any uh, any any documentation of you using this photo, so uh, we hereby demand uh, that you pay us for it. And how much do they demand? Five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars. Yes. And you said. I said I don't have any money. They said we don't care. And you said, fine, chase me. I said I don't have any money, and then they said, well, we could chase you under certain laws and if we find you guilty uh it is uh there is a precedent for per violation and it's um one hundred and fifty thousand dollars you know this isn't going anywhere right well this is a shakedown that's all this is it is a shakedown however i did consult an attorney and and they said yeah you could be running into real problems So basically all you're going to do is you're going to say, yeah, fine, chase me, and you're going to wait to see where it goes. Well... Because what else are you going to do? You're not going to pay them $5,000 fucking for a seven-year-old photo you pulled off Google Image Search? Of course not. But uh, the fastest way I have been told is to negotiate this down to a settlement because I really don't have... It would be the fastest way to make this go away. So I'm... Well, what are you in a hurry? Who cares? Let, let it dry. It's not going anywhere. You know that. I'll tell you why. It's because the letter comes from the pre-litigation firm, and they gave me a 10-day uh, deadline to settle this. There is no such thing as a deadline to settle that sort of thing. They've got to file in court. I know. So they, these guys are just screwing you over. Ignore it. Okay. I, I tell you- I, as your legal counsel, I strongly encourage you to ignore it. As someone who spent not one but two years at Humber College taking the radio program, <laughs> I advise you legally to ignore this. I tell you what, if we do have anybody out there who is a, a, a lawyer uh, and is well-versed in international copyright law, please get in contact with me as soon as you possibly can. 
please. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation. Oh, okay. I, I realize what I'm looking at here is a still image, like it's your profile picture or something like that. Okay. We're not actually seeing your video right now, but we don't need your video anyway. You know what? I, I have to move into the Zoom background business. I saw <clears> a bunch of them the other day, uh, and the best one I saw was the Matrix back backdrop. My favorite was um, the backdrops, the the illustrated backdrops from the TV show Archer. Do you know that show? Yeah. Yeah, okay, that would be cool. Yeah, so what they did was they just took all the characters so, out of the rooms. Okay. And so you could be in Mallory Archer's office directing ISIS and all of their top secret uh, issues. Okay, Glenn, I'm, I'm going to, uh, sorry about this, but d you're going to have to teach me how to put a background in my Zoom um, feed. I don't know how to do it. I have no clue. I found one here. The f free Matrix-inspired Zoom online meeting virtual background now on sale for $0. Oh, okay. This is the most boomer conversation I've had in a while. It, it, it really is, but... Um